Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. If you're like me, you're bogged down in the tsunami of information online about ecological design, techniques for best practice, and how and what to implement first. There's some articles and blogs that have supporting information and some that conflict, and it's really tough to tell what's right or what's right for you. The truth is, until you have a framework to guide you through all of this noise, more information can just serve to paralyze your progress. And that's why I want to tell you about something exciting that I've been working on with ecosystem restoration camps. We've now put out an online training from 18 of the world's top practitioners in ecological restoration who will walk you through five modules designed to explain the most essential information to get you moving forward on your regenerative project right away. The course covers things like how to identify causes of landscape degradation, restoration of any zone types from wild to agricultural and urban, and most importantly, a step-by-step process on how to gather information from your site to create a customized restoration plan for your unique needs and context. You'll learn from people like John D. Liu, Neil Spackman, Ramis Kent, Lisa Shaw, and many more, including me, Oliver Gaucher, as your facilitator through design criteria. Seeing as most of us need to be social distancing right now, you can work through all five modules from the comfort of your home, or just choose the modules that you would like to take based on your own interests and budget. I'm incredibly proud of this course. It gives you the chance to learn how to restore any piece of land close to your heart, regardless of the setting or climate, and just as importantly, how to create businesses that will fund it. We're now offering a 20% discount until the 15th of April, so reserve your place today at ecosystemrestorationcamps.org under the Get Involved tab. There's also a direct link in the show notes for this episode. Imagine that this quarantine could be the time that you used to create a restoration plan for your land that launches you into amazing action when it's over. Together we can come out of this situation better than ever before. I can't wait to see you on the course. My guest today needs little introduction. Joel Salatin has been one of the most prominent voices in regenerative agriculture for many years now, and I thought he'd be the perfect person to not only kick off this new series on regenerative agriculture, but also for his optimistic perspective on the future that we're collectively heading into as our country continues to grapple with the social and economic costs of the COVID-19 pandemic and its response. Though I'd always planned to speak with Joel about the future and opportunities in regenerative farming in the U.S. and around the world, I had no idea just how relevant these topics would be as we find ourselves questioning the future of just about every industry and its environmental impact at this unique moment in history. Though many of us are looking at the bleak predictions of the world economy and all the other looming catastrophes that involve everything from our environment to the food supply system, we are also seeing an unprecedented review of priorities and focus. In this episode, Joel and I discuss how this crisis has affected the farming industry at large, but also the incredible impact it's had on small local farmers. He tells me a bit about how he sees this event as a blessing if it's managed correctly and if we use it as one. Joel also gives details about how his own farm is adapting to the restrictions and finding opportunities to bring his community closer and connect them with other local producers in the area. 
We also muse over the likely changes that our culture will experience for a long time in the wake of this, and what the good and worrisome aspects likely are. In the end though, I left this chat feeling inspired and much more optimistic than I was before, and I hope that's how you feel by the end too. So now I'll hand things over to the lunatic farmer himself, Joel Salatin. Hey Joel, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me again. Uh, we find ourselves in an interesting situation globally right now. How are things where you are in Virginia? Well, it depends on if you're in the country or in the city. <laughs> it certainly does. It certainly does. <laughs> Out here on the farm, you know, we have to pinch ourselves to, or, you know, actually watch the news to realize that anything's going on. The, the cows are calving, the chicks are coming, the uh, the the hens are laying eggs. The tomatoes are growing. Um, you know, we're spreading compost. I mean, you know, the bees are coming. The blossoms are blooming, and uh, you know, life goes on here on the farm. It's a it's a it's a wonderful uh, balm, if you will, a salve in a in a time of unprecedented calamity, at least in my lifetime. And uh, to be able to be here in this in this womb of consistency and normalcy is uh, uh, truly uh, uh, a a calming thing. Well, that's just it, isn't it? Is this 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 is a, a major crisis, but it's a very selective one, and it is not either affecting everyone nor every living being equally. And from all the farmers that I've talked to, and uh, the ones that I've collaborated with in the past that I've been in touch with, it's business is normal for them as far as their day-to-day tasks, but certainly there are some changes in the market. Now, I mean, th- there seems to be a lot of cause of concern for like leadership around the world, but there at the same time seems to be a lot of good coming out of this sudden and drastic reordering of our society and our economy with people being more focused, it seems, on their communities and their self-sufficiency. So my question is, have you seen many examples of this in the farming sector and in your own community? Yes, actually, um, a lot, <laughs> a lot. We're, we're seeing, they say that a crisis does not create a trend. It simply either accelerates a trend that's already developing or it, it, uh, it brings into broad, uh, a clearer focus uh, a trend that's already developing. Mm. And so... Um, a, a couple of a couple of really specific things that we've seen with our farm in, in the last you know what three weeks is a uh, an exponential interest and in growth and purchasing of backyard chickens. You know, three four chickens for a backyard flock. I'm going to have sure. eggs. Uh, this and and of course in the in the U.S. now, uh, literally hatcheries, all independent hatcheries are backlogged up to three months. You can't buy a chick in the U.S. now. They're, they're all uh, ordered and, and snarfed up. Mm. Um, even the New York Times is writing about this. It's, it's, it's uh, in, in the media parlance, it's called a phenom. You know, it's a phenom, sure. it, uh, this, this new trend. So, um, so, yeah, that certainly speaks right to your self-reliance that, that people are, are engaging in this. And of course, we think this is a great thing. Another huge thing that's happening is all of the, the little independent seed companies, especially that sell heirloom seeds or non-chemicalized uh, seeds. Uh, they are also, in fact, many of them have shut down their websites for, for three days just to, just to be able to, to breathe and catch up with orders. Wow. Um, you know, that, that has developed as well. 
and again, uh, I think that there's going to be more gardens, more, more gardens put in this year than we've seen probably since, you know, since the World War II victory gardens mm. um, uh, back at that time. That also is a very, very good trend. There are some real positive things going on. Undoubtedly. It seems like for every goofball who's loading up on toilet paper, there's a good two or three who've got their priorities straight and they're looking to get chickens and seeds. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think that the, the, the physics, you know, for every action, there's an equal opposite reaction. I think that that, I think that that certainly, um, certainly exists. Uh, you know, there's a, there's definitely a new sense of, I'll just call it, you know, the English, the English language is so wonderful because we can just hang things on words. And so I call it home centricity, uh, mm. coming home. There's, there's definitely, as people are forced to come home, they are then forced to find their entertainment, their satisfaction, their life affirmation, uh, you know, in a more home centric model. And so, you know, my hope from this would be that people would find as much, whatever, a personal fulfillment value uh, in, in, for example, growing a garden as going on a Disney vacation or a Caribbean cruise. Mm -hmm. uh, not, not that I hate Disney or, or hate Caribbean cruises. I, I just think, I just think that as a, as a percentage of, of GDP, um, our, our culture has moved toward uh, frivolous entertainment for those time and dollars as opposed to, well, I'll just call it meaningful entertainment, which could mm. be anything from, you know, putting together a family doing a, uh, a theater night, you know, let the kids do a marionette show or something, you know, just, um, or, or community. I mean, I, I think of, uh, um, back a hundred years ago, p communities would, for example, um, get together and do have, have a, have a community spelling bee or <laughs> perhaps a, a public debate over some pressing issue and have, you know, two actors who would take the part of, of one side or the other just to, to bring something. And, and people did this. They, they didn't have TV. They didn't have Netflix. They didn't have all this other uh, stuff. And so they, they manufactured their own entertainment. And, um, and this, this quarantine, this, this, uh, this imposed home centricity, I think is, is bringing out some of these, you know, nostalgic, uh, nostalgic pre, you know, pre-modern ways of, of, um, you know, finding your creativity and, and your theatrical, uh, talents and those sorts of things. I think th those are all very, those are all very good things. I completely agree. I'm, I'm going back to a lot of the things that, you know, entertained me when I was a kid and, I guess the the bigger question now is is do you think that this is going to continue? Is this going to last once the easements on social distancing and the crisis of the epidemic starts to subside? Well, that's the that's the big question, isn't it? We we have no way of knowing, but I can tell you, based I mean, 
again, we live in this, we live in this uh, Jekyll and Hyde world. We live out here on the farm, but we direct market. So every day our delivery drivers are not every day, but, but most days our delivery drivers are in the city, in the, the belly of the beast in the city. And, uh, and it's interesting, the things that we're hearing, um, I can tell you that the, the shock of this is going to make people fearful of crowds for a long, long time. Yeah, it does seem that way. And, and uh, I mean, uh, Disney is talking about if you go to Disney, in addition to going through, you know, baggage security as you go in the front gate, uh, they very well may, may uh, require you to take, to take your temperature going in. I mean, that, that seems like a, a crazy world to those of us who are a little bit older. Um, but you know, if, if, if going into public spaces, if going into crowded spaces becomes way more laborious, I mean, look at, look at how people have flocked to, um, to the, to the TSA, to pre-check, you know, yeah, to, I was just to about to say, avoid, yeah. How much we put up house. with the fly. Absolutely, and and people like me that that fly, uh, at least we used to, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> fly, fly routinely. You know, we're glad to go get you know pay a hundred dollars and get fingerprinted and background checked just to not have the hassle of going through the regular line at the TSA. Yeah, yeah. If 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 that becomes normal in in stadiums and in uh, graduation ceremonies in you know, uh, uh, Las Vegas entertainment shows and theater venues and things like that. The, the hassle factor, I think the hassle factor and the, uh, the fear factor among people, um, is going to linger for a very, very long time, which means that, yeah, which means that there will be an atomization uh, a decentralization, we could even say a democratization of of the um, the pastimes, the hobbies, the entertainment, the recreational um, venues are going to be downsized. They're going to be more community oriented. They're going to be smaller groups of people. I mean, I don't think we're going to be taking temperatures at weddings and funerals and things. And, and there, there will certainly be a number, you know, uh, uh, you know, I'm comfortable in a, in a room full of 400 people or 500 people. But I think, I think that the day when people are going to just without any care at all, go to a, an 80,000 uh, seat stadium I I think that that's going to take years to to come back. I, I really do. I mean, we we see it in our in our customers. Uh, you know, out here on the farm, obviously, we're not wearing gloves or masks or anything. We're with the cows and the chickens and all that stuff. But I'll tell you, uh, folks, <laughs> folks that we are great customers that we service in the urban sector where they're pinned up in their apartments, they're getting twenty four seven history. Uh, uh, hysterical news feeds and they've been told 2 million of us are going to die and then 200,000 are going to die. Now I think it's down to 60,000 are going to die and, and we're just living in this, this uh, uh, 
barrage, daily barrage of doomsday, um, it's, it's, taking, it's taking the bounce out of people. It's taking the starch out of people. And, yeah, it, and I, I and I hate to see I hate to see it on their faces. They're 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 scared. They're frustrated. They're depressed. Um, it's a you know it's it, it's a big deal. And so I can tell you, I've talked to some people who say as soon as things get lifted from travel, uh, and as things start to ease off, literally hundreds of thousands of people will get out of the cities. If there's one, if there's, there's a couple big, you know, demographic things that are developing from this. One is if there's one place you don't want to be in a, in a cultural shock of any kind, it's in the city. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so this, uh, distance, you know, distance work. Um, so this is pushing two things. One is, People are desperate to get out of the city. They're they're looking for. Well, I mean, I, I have a nephew in uh, New York. He's in. He's an actor, and um, and guess what? You know, Tuesday of this week, he got his little shotgun motorcycle out of mothballs and fled the city. And he's here living in a in a quarantining here in a in a barn on the farm. We haven't seen him. He's been here for three days, and he's got a little tent. And he's up in the barn area sleeping in the hay. And he's going to self quarantine for two weeks. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> drastic times but, call for drastic measures, and you know I'm sure there's a lot of people who could sympathize with that desire to to get out of these centers right now. And like you were saying, there does seem like there's going to be sort of a collective anxiety that is going to linger a lot longer than perhaps the symptoms of the disease. And how that's going to transform our economy and the way that we interact. Like you said, the social gatherings could be impacted, but I like your observations too, that this could lead to more of a home centrization or, or focus on the community in general and realizing that so much of what we need and what we desire can be met in our communities. If we kind of focus to, to redevelop the centers once again, and not always rely on, these external and and far away versions of entertainment or sustenance. Yes, and and uh, I use the word atomization. I mean, yeah. the to 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 um, to atomize to, to imagine everything that right now is celebrity status, basically. Uh, you know, from from you know Caribbean cruises to Hollywood to Las Vegas, whatever imagine all of that being community sized, downsized and atomized um, so that the venues are smaller. There are way more uh, participants. <laughs> That's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. and, and, and all of that is a, is a huge thing. I can tell you that in the food sector, certainly uh, there is a renewed um, uh, disenfranchisement with the supermarket we uh, uh every single direct market farmer that i've talked to in the united states and, and even in australia and europe but every one of us that's actually selling into a local clientele whether it's through farmers markets csa's uh on-farm stores uh you know uh delivery uh, door, um you know community delivery 
all of those combinations, uh, including uh, internet sales, uh, those of us who are, mm-hmm. are shipping uh, and we're selling across. But any farmer who's direct marketing, um, I mean, for us personally, we're having the best spring we've ever had in, in history. Um, our inventory is way down, but here's what's happened. The, the just-in-time inventory of the, of the large-scale supermarkets means that, a, that every, any given city only has three days' worth of food in it. Yeah. That's it. Uh, pe- people don't stockpile food in their homes. They assume that the supermarket will stockpile it, but the supermarket is not stockpiling it. It's doing just-in-time inventory from the warehouse, which is doing just-in-time inventory from the processing facility which is doing just-in-time inventory from wherever they're happening to get it from around the world. And the, and, and the result of that is that when there's a shock like this, um, there, there's nothing behind the screen. And, and so, and so um, what's happened here is that those of us who direct market, who direct uh, farmers who direct market, we do stockpile. We don't do just in time inventory because we don't have a warehouse. We don't, we don't just, Oh, I'm short of green beans. I'll call up, uh, you know, Peru and see if I can get a shipment of green beans from Peru today. Um, we, we actually do stockpile. We don't do just in time. And so as the, as the store shelves emptied, suddenly, Suddenly, we local farmers with our, our stash of stuff that we keep, you know, for, for three months, if, the, if a fox gets in the kitchen, chickens or, you know, if there's a, a drought and we're short of crop, uh, our stockpile became the substitute for the, for the inability of the industrial food system to, uh, to be nimble enough to be able to adjust, to, uh, get material fast enough for how it was leaving the shelves. We've had people now come to us both on our farm store and online sales and things that have told us, you know, a, they will never go back to the supermarket. B um, they have come to us for the first time in their lives because they couldn't find it at, at the store at the at the supermarket. And frankly, they are they are concerned about long chains of custody. They're they're concerned about about a food system that is resilient, a food system that's nimble enough. And what they're what they're seeing is talking to their friends and neighbors and stuff. Well, these direct these direct brand farmers. That's where the stuff is, and so um, we we think now. How many of these will stay with us after the crisis is over? Nobody can say. But as uh, my son Daniel and I were talking the other day, goodness, if we just keep if we just keep ten percent of the new interest in authentic local foods uh, that has come during this this uh, shock, we're it's going to be a you know a major bump, like a doubling of sales going mm-hmm. forward. Yeah, and I've I've observed that here in Europe as well. I mean, my partner and I, we were already bar- buying directly from a farm not far from here. And it's been incredible to watch how small outfits like yours, like the one here in Spain where I live, have been nimble enough to change their marketing and their business model on the fly. Like they went from, you know, kind of having an open market to 
selling everything ahead of time online, you pay with a credit card. And when you show up, they just load a, a box of your purchases into your trunk and you drive off with it without any interactions. Now, obviously that's not ideal in the long term, but it's, it's shown an incredible resilience from these small producers to be able to meet the needs of even such an anomaly of an event like this. And it's been extremely inspiring to say like what you observed with, you know, even if it's just a matter of keeping 10% of this increased clientele base, this could really be the event that, that changes and creates a groundswell that really transforms the food industry all around the world. Yes, absolutely. I'll tell you one uh, little story from what happened here. So, you know, we, we live in a very rural area. We're not, even though we're on the East Coast, the Eastern part of the U.S., uh, our farm is, is, you know, we're on the dirt road. Uh, we're, what, we're 100 miles from a city of, you know, 100,000 people. So we're, you know, we're not, we're not urban by any means. Um, so our, our city, um, which is 10 miles away, is a, is a city of about, you know, 19 to 20,000 people. So it's, you know, it's, it's got, it's big enough to have everything you want, but it's not, it would certainly not be called, it doesn't have a rush hour. You know, there, it's sure. not an urban, sure. urban place. Well, it has a farmer's market. And it's been up, the farmer's market's been operating for, you know, 25, 30 years. And um, so the governor closed all the farmer's markets in Virginia because he said they were non-essential, non-essential businesses. Yeah, I heard and, about that. Yeah. And of course, you know, from our standpoint, it, it was just um, ludicrous that it's, it's safer and healthier to go shop at Walmart than it is at, a, at an open air farmer's market. But be that as it may, um, Wendy, my personal assistant and a friend of hers, a, 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 a cheese, cheese crafter here in the area, the two of them got together. So well, you know, what can we do about this? And, um, and they brainstormed an idea. They said, well, well could we start a drive, a local food drive-through? And, uh, mm. so, cause we had a, re we had a restaurant that was, they were out of business cause the restaurants were closed. So they had a vacant parking lot. And, um, so literally from, when you, I, I'm, I'm pointing out how, how nimble small can be. It's a lot easier to turn a speedboat than an aircraft carrier. And so, so uh, these two uh, gals, Wendy and Luella, conceived of this local food drive-through 48 hours later. I mean, within two days, they launched it at this local, at this uh, parking lot, created an online platform. Uh, we, we were one of four. We had us. We had a produce grower, a baker, and a cheesemaker. So the four of us went together. We launched this thing in 48 hours. It is already, in, in, we're in our third week now, it has already generated way more money than the farmer's market, than the whole 30-year-old farmer's market did in its peak every week. That's amazing. That's amazing. And. And, and, and so people order online, they literally drive up, they roll their window down. We have all their, their uh, orders are uh, pre prepackaged in alphabetical order. Hi, I'm, you know, I'm Mary, you know, Mary Smith. And we grab her bag. She rolls her window down. We toss it in the car. She drives on. We don't touch. We don't do anything. It's a 15 second transition. And the folks 
are loving it. For the first time, we feel like we have a, a credible local alternative to Walmart curbside service. And, and if, if nothing more than that comes out of this pandemic, it will have been worth it because now there are communities all across the country that are duplicating this effort to the same effect, and, uh, and it could literally revolutionize the convenience um, the convenience of, of local food, um, you know, inter- of a local food transfer, local food interface. It absolutely could. And it seems like, I mean, this is better than being able to, to frequent the stores that we were used to before the level of service, the level of quality. I mean, you may have to adapt to certain days when it's open or not, but I mean, you don't even have to spend a fraction of the time that you used to having to go and pick out your stuff at the store or, even, you know, if for some reason you didn't like meandering around the farmer's market, I mean, the convenience factor is incredible. Yes, it is. And yeah, so, so, the, the, so think about the savings on both parties. So the farmer gets to save time by not, by not uh, having to, and I don't want to say this as a total negative, but let me tell you, as a farmer who direct markets, the, the direct interaction with every single customer, um, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time. And, and you look at the end of the day, well, we took in $1,000 and we spent, you know, uh, eight, eight hours uh, chitting and chatting with customers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it's a, meanwhile, you know, the chickens need to be watered and the green beans needed to be weeded and the, you know, the spinach need to be picked. And, and so there's this there's this tension as a direct market farmer, the cost of of the cost of babysitting customers, you know, is, is a huge deal. Whereas on whereas online we can communicate our messaging that we want to, we can inform, we can educate, we can say come out to the farm and visit anytime you want to. I may not talk to you, but 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 we're open. You're welcome to come and 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 you know see what we're doing. Um, uh, but but it, it, it kind of moves this 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 um oh this, this kind of hand holding babysitting time which is real to a farmer uh it, it moves it to a more efficient place for the buyer for the consumer um it means that they can shop on their own time you know in their pajamas at midnight if they want to yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they they can shop easily and um and on their way home from work, uh, they just they just uh, stop by. It, it it throws in their car, and they go home. And it's it's more convenient than anything they can imagine, too. So both parties both parties can come together when they want to. I mean, that's why we you know we want we want transparent farms. We want open uh, public public uh, access farms. That's the ultimate, uh, whatever, um, you know, audit of authenticity. But at the same time, uh, we don't, we, we, we need, we desperately need more efficient um, interfaces, more efficient interfaces to be able to transact business. Yeah, definitely. And the thing is, it seems like it's these smaller producers and not only you know, we're talking about size or scale, but these tend also to be the same people who tend towards uh, regenerative agricultural methods. I mean, you're not seeing a huge line outside of your monocrop wheat and corn and soy farms at the same time. 
And it seems like regenerative farmers focus on resilience through diversification in their business model and by investing in the health of their ecologies that they interact with um, is, is really starting to pay off. And like you've been doing this on your farm for a good few decades now. How have those priorities begun to pay you back? Yeah, well, for sure, uh, being having a, a a multiple group of of production, you know, where we're not just beef or pork. We're you know we've got. I mean, we tend to we we're, we're obviously concentrated in uh, livestock, but we uh, but we have you know turkey, chicken, pork, lamb, beef, uh, duck. Uh, you know, there's there's this very broad portfolio because what what happens pretty quickly when you begin direct marketing very quickly you realize that the big cost is in acquiring a customer and so once you have a customer that customer um, wants to get as big a variety as possible the one-stop shop I mean that's a that's a very uh, uh, appropriate thing and so um, so simply trying to serve your customers moves you to either produce more variety or or partner up with somebody nearby who does complementary things so we've now partnered with a a, a grass-based dairy that's doing a wonderful um uh, cheese line so we're selling his cheese we're teamed up with a local outfit that makes um Kimchi, uh, all sorts of ferments, sauerkraut, kimchi, that sort of thing. Another one that does kombucha. They have a, a live uh, kombucha culture, and they do a wonderful uh, kombucha. There's two ladies in the community that are are that 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 are uh, great in the kitchen, and they're now using our chicken necks and backs and things and making stock, heavy heavy vegetable soups and stews and things like that that we can sell as well so we're collaborating with another guy that um uh that got us into a, a guy that makes jerky and so now we have snack sticks we have pork and beef snack sticks different flavors and you know high protein snack sticks like to complement our own our, our hot dogs that we have made and so um what happens is that as as you as you build this customer base um, customers start asking, well, you know, do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have this? And um, so if you can take, if you can take this handful of customers and turn them from spending $400 a year to spending a thousand dollars a year, um, that is the, that is the cheapest, most efficient way to grow your business not by acquiring new customers necessarily, but simply by serving a larger percentage of the portfolio that those customers are purchasing, which, which pushes you into either diversifying your production or diversifying your portfolio through partnership, or in our case, both. And, uh, and, and the, the bottom line is that it simply brings uh, production into a community that the community maybe wouldn't ordinarily have. Uh, you know, we're starting to realize that, well, just because Idaho grows good potatoes does not mean that every potato in the, in the country should come from Idaho. And, and so, okay, so in our area, 
maybe we don't grow potatoes as as easily as they do in Idaho, but um, there there is a resilience value in acquiring potatoes nearby than everybody in the country being dependent on potatoes from Idaho, and and I think that this shock has actually moved that discussion. Um, it, it's that discussion is now penetrating the business community and a lot more, you know, average con uh, consumers than it did three months ago. And that's a good thing. It absolutely is. Yeah. And it also seems it's coming at this amazing time when we have the technology to facilitate this, right? I mean, not only is it fairly cheap to travel and you can get out to a farm without much difficulty, but we have all of these online tools to facilitate the ease of transactions and the convenience factor that otherwise, you know, larger businesses used to hold a monopoly on. Now these smaller producers can compete on an almost an equal playing field. Yes. Uh, the, the, the technology in both online selling, which is literally, uh, you know, new in the last, I'm, I'm just going to say basically the last 20 years, the online, the, the platforms for shop, online shopping carts have really um, finessed to a place where even a, a small outfit like us can actually have a platform like this that, that works with a minimum of glitches. Uh, that's that's uh, extremely powerful. And secondly, the just the, the distribution capacity. Now, of course, that's dominated right now by the big players, Amazon, uh, UPS, uh, and um, FedEx. Those are, the, those are the great big players. But what we're seeing now in our communities, we're now collaborating with, with um, numerous smaller distribution services that are, that are more regional or even localized. Some of them are what we uh, lovingly call all a man in a van. It rhymes real well in English, so we use it. But a man <laughs> yeah. in a van, and, and this is simply this is simply a person with a, with a delivery van, who acts as a, a, a kind of a courier, and just moves product in small volumes, um, but not very far. You know, may, maybe won't go more than um, eighty or ninety miles, maybe a hundred hundred miles at, at at the max, and. Um, and if you have a, you know, a, a one or one and a half ton uh, van that you can fill and you can put that thing on the road, uh, I know several people in our area that are, that are doing this or, or, or little, you know, very, very small little box trucks, little pup trucks. And, um, and, and so there's now just a burgeoning um, kind of, local duplication what was developed globally and this is this is my favorite part of the whole thing all of this logistics in in uh, online selling online distribution all that sort of thing it's all developed by the big outfits but their their innovations and their platforms trickle down and so now we can as small operators we can glum on to their big uh, uh, technology investments and localize what they did for globalization. Now we are co-opting and localizing it. And to me, that's like a, um, 
that's like the ultimate uh, you know, smackdown. Yeah. I mean, it's so <laughs> exciting that, that things like this are coming out of an event that, you know, it's, it's hard to see the silver lining on, but you just have to kind of look at where the priorities of the average person are starting to go to in this time of crisis. And it seems like people have their priorities fairly well figured out. Now, you know, we've been talking a lot about the business models and how those have changed drastically, but let's talk a little bit about the root causes of this pandemic, which of course are environmental degradation and factory farming of both wild and domestic animals. This is how you get those zoonotic viruses hopping from animals to humans in these close contact, unsanitary markets and, and production facilities. Do you worry that if a vaccine or a treatment is found quickly, that collectively we may forget to focus on the real solutions for sort of the Band-Aid fixes of making this go away temporarily? Well, there's, there's certainly uh, the temptation for that. And, and uh, if you're a pessimist, uh, that's probably the way to bet because uh, we humans have worshipped at the altar of our cleverness for a very, very long time. That's a good way <laughs> and, of putting it. <laughs> and and uh, um, while, while you and I look at this as a very humbling experience, uh, you're exactly right. If, if some vaccine is developed, instead of being a humbling experience, it could be, um, you know, hubris, hubris on uh, steroids. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Oh look! Look at what we did. We beat you know we beat back, we beat back this terrible contagion with our cleverness and our our vaccines and, um, so you know it, it's hard to it, it's hard to speculate where it will go, but our our track record as a as a species, our track record um, tends to be toward hubris and not humility. I'll just I'll just say that. Indeed, indeed. Um, yeah, it, it seems like with this renewed focus on local production, healthy production of food, um, reliance on community and such, it might be a really good argument to make to start to at least shrink the influence of these destructive farming models and certainly the way animals are kept and treated around the world. But, you know, like we just talked about, there is the, the possibility that it could kind of blow over if, if we get sort of a Band-Aid solution too fast. Now, from a simple resilience perspective, now that we're starting to have this conversation around who is and who is not an essential worker, do you think, and, and I have a, an idea of where you might go with this, do you think it's more important to work to make yourself an essential worker in this economic system or to make yourself independent of it as much as possible? Oh, uh, that's a good question. In, in general, in general, I think that if that the the most um, resi or whatever the, the the most protected uh, vocations that you can move toward right now are skills based. Yeah. So if you can if you can grow something, repair something or build something. If you know how to build something, repair something, or grow something, in general, society will always need you. 
especially as we move into white collar, white collar vocational themes. Um, and these kinds of shocks uh, always stimulate interest in, well, in, in self-reliance, in, uh, in practical skills. Uh, interestingly, the, the one store in our area that throughout this has remained shoulder to shoulder, to shoulder crowded, I, I, I haven't actually been in it, but I've talked to people who were in it. It's, it's, it's Lowe's. It's the, uh, the home improvement store. Everybody is working on home improvement projects. They're putting on decks. They're putting on whatever, uh, you know, they're, they're making uh, raised garden beds. They're, you know, putting on the bathroom they never did or ripping up the floor and redoing the carpet. Um, and, and so, so the, the whole, uh, again, th this is, this is, coming back home to focusing our energy and attention on home. We have spent, we have spent, you know, uh, what's arguably 60 years, um, 70 years creating a, creating a, 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 a persona in our culture in which life happens outside the home, away from the home, and home is simply a pit stop between all the important things in life. And, and a, a shock like this, where people are turning homeward, turning familial, turning inward with their thinking, their, their work, their entertainment, uh, what this does is it, it inverts this exterior view to an interior view. And that self-examination, that, that interiorization of, of, uh, of thought, you know, it, it does make us start to rethink some of the things that we're doing. I, I, don't, think, I don't think that the restaurant trade is ever going to come back like it was. Mm. I, I just don't, I just don't think it ever was. And so for example, Trish and I've been, I mean, we're baby boomers, you know, I'm, I'll be 64 uh, next year and we're baby boomers. So that means our parents were world war two generation and our grandparents were, de were uh, depression or pre-depression. And so we're sitting here thinking, all right, if this is, if this is our depression, if this is, you know, we're talking about, 20 and 30% unemployment, which is as, as much as it was in the 1929 Great Depression. And, um, and we're saying, well, you know, how did we grow up? We, we were post-depression. We were, how did we grow up? And we realized we never went out to eat, you know. Um, and, and I'll be very sexist here. Women, women traded recipes all the time. Um, they, they, didn't, they didn't trade, um, they didn't trade Netflix, you know, the latest net Netflix craze. They didn't trade the latest gossip from the Kardashians. They traded recipes. And, and so, 
and in fact, our still our favorite recipes are from you know uh, she grew up in a Presbyterian church, and and every five years they made a recipe book. It's still you know <laughs> still some of our many of our favorite recipes, and so when you start looking at that social structure you realize you know, they didn't need the kardashians they didn't need netflix they were they were trading recipes for crying out loud um you know wouldn't it wouldn't it be cool if if this kind of shock brought maybe not all of it but at least a, a renewed appreciation to where that's not viewed as just you know old stodgy you know stodgy neanderthal living but actually is hey that's that's pretty cool, Grandma. You know, that's pretty right? cool. <laughs> yeah, this could end up so, being a real bridge between the generations as well. It it, it sure could. It sure could. And and just uh, and and then um, savings. Uh, I mean, I was reading the Wall Street Journal uh, a, a month ago, and they did a huge uh, special section on millennials. You know, this this year, someday this year. Uh, the buying power of millennials is going to pass the buying power of baby boomers. So we're, we're having this huge generational transfer in, in, in market power. And, um, and so I, uh, I read this section and um, I, uh, you know, read through it. And, and what was interesting was that um, the people, the, the people that they interviewed, uh, one of the common things was, um, uh, there are a lot of positive things in millennials, but but one of the the one glaring negative was that as a group, they would rather spend money on on enjoyment today than save money for you know something they'll enjoy for, for a rainy day fund or something they'll enjoy later. Uh, deferred enjoyment. Um, my goodness, we grew up. I mean, saving was in our DNA. We saved we saved uh, squares of aluminum foil. There was a uh, a, a drawer in the in the kitchen where you know you if something was wrapped in aluminum foil you took it off carefully and then you you put it in this drawer that was the aluminum foil scrap door drawer and uh, Teresa's grandmother had a string she had a string strung in the ceiling of the kitchen and she would wash and hang up um, pieces of saran wrap when she'd unwrap something with saran wrap mm. she'd hang it back up there and clothespin it so it would dry and then she could reuse that scrap of saran wrap again the, the whole notion of of just savings and stockpiling and and you know preparing um uh, you know it, it obviously got a big kick at y2k y2k was a big a big kick and, and there are still people uh i mean y2k stick kicked off the entire prepper you know prepper movement right right and and it and and you know it's not as big as it was in 2001 or 1999 for sure, but but there are still there's still plenty of prepper, you know, leftovers. Uh, oh, certainly um, from, from, <laughs> from from that thing, and and that turned out to be a complete non-event. So if we look at 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 nine at uh, Y2K, and see what it spawned in the whole prepper movement, imagine that at you know at five times that power. Uh, with what we're having today, so you know this could have a pretty this could have a pretty long tail. Yeah, there's definitely going to be endless talk from here on out from a pre and a post COVID nineteen world. Huh? <laughs> it's pretty wild to be living in that transfer because it's almost like this is the little eye of the hurricane, right? This is when things aren't necessarily happening so much 
if you're confined to your home, if you've, you know, uh, lost your, your job either temporarily or permanently now, this is still kind of the calm period while people are trying to figure things out and, and try and predict what's going to happen after this. And it's, it's such a weird and eerie little moment in history to be experiencing collectively. And I think that's really the, the anomaly of all of this is that we're all going through it at the same time. I mean, I'm talking about the exact same event from Spain to Virginia right now, and that in itself is remarkable. That's unprecedented in history. Well, sure. I mean, imagine during the, um, uh, what was it, the, uh, the tulip, you know, the, the economic tulip collapse in the Netherlands in whatever it was, 1500 or some such thing. Mm. That was such a, such a huge uh, thing. Or, or, or the Black Death or whatever. Our ability now to, to you know, communicate and transfer information, collect data, and uh, collaborate, network, share, share uh, experiences is unprecedented so yes this worldwide um uh event is coupled with our technology to be able to communicate about it makes this very different than it would have been say 200 years ago when news of what was happening in wuhan would would not have um you know, transferred somebody else. Yeah, and of course, wouldn't have registered. You know, and, and of course, a, a, per, a person a person couldn't go and come from Wuhan in forty eight hours back then either. You know, it was a long, slow, indeed, <laughs> slow process. So yes, you're right. It 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 is a it is a very very unique time. It's it's an exciting. But I agree with you. I think the I think the fallout. I think the fallout from this is very much still to be determined uh, economically. Uh, I mean, I'm seeing, you know, governments, governments don't have money. They, they, either, they either take money through taxes, licensing, um, and, and uh, uh, whatever, fees, um, or they simply print more. Now, you know, I don't mean run printing presses, but they, that they can create money out of thin air. And, and that, of course, is normally, one is confiscatory, the other one is inflationary. Um, uh, but the, you know, the, the economic ramifications of what's going on here to try to, to try to print enough money to make up the shortfall for 30% of the economy is just... Uh, I'm right there with you, and we could go on a whole nother interview just on these topics. But uh, instead of going that direction, how about I give you one more question to kind of wrap this one up? Um, okay. <laughs> with how things are happening so fast and changing so quickly, and, and from having your finger on the pulse of regenerative agriculture, especially in the United States for decades now, where do you see the future of regenerative ag, ecological agriculture going? And maybe what would you recommend to others who are either in this or getting started in it that they might, you know, want to adapt to or expect as things continue? Uh, well, I, I think, I think here again, we have kind of two opposing forces. We have on the one hand, we have the, the industrial, you know, if you will, the Monsantos and Bayers of the world, um, they haven't taken their foot off the gas at all. 
uh, many of us thought that that this whole uh, roundup roundup thing was going to be a uh, you know a kind of a a collapse, but uh, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. I mean, all the in the commercial farmers that I know, uh, they think the whole thing is a joke, and they're buying Roundup and GMOs uh, as fast as anything. So I see on the one hand, and, and you know, factory farms are still being built. Um, so I, I don't see the I don't see that foot off the gas pedal at all. Now, now. Um, many of us think that that is certainly not regenerative. It's not even sustainable. It can't continue. They will. Uh, and so, so on the other side, so we represent the, the complete 180 degree other side of that whole, um, that whole issue. So what we have to be is an antidote and preparing the antidote for when that system collapse collapses. Now, you know, we had, we had mad cow, we had the hoof and mouth in great Britain. I mean, we've, we've had avian flu. We've had swine flu. Of course, China has just gone through this huge swine, this African swine epidemic that dropped their uh, swine production by 30 or 40%, which has been largely made up by American production because they bought Smithfield, the, the largest Chinese acquisition of an American company uh, was was the pigs, <laughs> and uh, and so we see these cracks starting to happen, uh, desertification, uh, uh, all these kind of things uh, happening, and and so I think that that one of our goals in the regenerative agriculture movement, yes, we don't like this stuff, and we and from time to time we do you know rail against it, okay. But I think I think where we need to channel our energy, we need to channel our energy in really developing credible, viable um, alternatives as antidotes for all the weaknesses and fragility that we see in the um, in in the the industrial system, so that when it does finally reach its inability to perform, uh, i.e., the, the chemicals don't work as well. There just isn't enough organic matter in the soil to even convert chemical, you know, NPK to plant food. Uh, when, you know, when the aquifers are depleted, when the, the rains don't come as much, all the different things, uh, we need to be doing the things. We need to be growing the vegetation, building the soil, uh, getting efficient um, uh, protocols in place, building the immune system of our plants, the immune system of our animals, of our of our people, uh, so that so that when that when that tip over occurs, we have a viable antidote that can quickly diffuse we will be the innovation that then can quickly diffuse throughout the suffering system and create the bomb that the suffering system needs when it's in collapse 
Mm-hmm. Well said. I mean, you can see indications of that happening already. And it's uh, absolutely it's so great that this has been an economic advantage for those producers because they're the people who could really use it the most. That's where, you know, your money stays in the community and it goes right back into improving the earth around you. And for for something like that to be happening out of what seems to be a disaster you know, for, for just about everybody else, it really gives me a lot of hope. And um, on that note, Joel, can you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you and your farm and how they can learn more about, wow, I mean, you did have a lot of teaching and educational trips planned this year. I was talking with Richard Perkins, and (laughs) unfortunately, it looks like that one's going to have to be canceled the trip to Sweden. I was really looking forward to that, but um, what have you still got well, it's, available it's, for it's, them? It's postponed. It's, it's not canceled. It's postponed. Oh, well, and, let's hope. And, and the new, well, the, the new, I mean, he's already picked a new date. The new date is um, August 24 to 27. Well, here's hoping. I would love to see that happen. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So our website is Polyface Farms, P-O-L-Y-F-A-C-E, Polyface Farms. Uh, and you can go to our website. You can, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff there, a lot of links. Um, I do a daily blog called The Musings from the Lunatic Farmer. And um, it's a little short, very, very short um, uh, little thing. But, um, yeah, you can keep up with us there where I'm traveling, speaking, um, any educational, informational things. We're still hoping we're going to host the Mother Earth News Fair here July 17 and 18. If the restrictions are lifted by then, we will certainly have it. And my sense is that that demographic that's already bought tickets and coming, uh, they will not be the timid, paranoid uh, people that we normally encounter, but will be intrepid and and with cabin fever, uh, <laughs> ready to uh, to go to go attend. Uh, attend I think that's a, a fairly self bet, a fairly safe bet on that one. Yeah. <laughs> So we're, we're hoping that'll still happen July 17 and 18. But uh, yeah, you can keep up with us through polyfacefarms.com. Marvelous. Well, Joel, as always, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. We covered some really interesting ground here. And I wish you all the best in this unprecedented time and all the fluctuations that come with it and that you and your family stay healthy throughout. Same to you, Oliver. Thank you very much for your interest and your, your constant uh, unflappable regard for these issues that are are more important than most of us realize so thank you well thank you as well all right let's stay in touch and all the best of luck to you take care thank you all right that wraps things up for this week's episode if you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it as well as articles and other resources you can find the full library of previous podcasts at abundantedge.com The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at and I'll look forward to being in touch. 
New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform. And I'll catch you on next week's show.